0: I first experienced Halloween at six years old. I know I was a little bit of a late starter, but I experienced Halloween at six and it was my cousin who was invited to this Halloween party and she asked my mom if I could go. My mom said yes and so we drove to the place. I got there, it was this house, and what I noticed was that I was the only one not wearing a costume. I mean, it was kind of a weird thing. Now I gotta give you the, understand, you gotta understand it, it was 1979. You can believe that that time actually existed. It was 1979. We walk up to the house like ABBA is blasting in in the stereo. All right. So, you know, it's like Dancing Queen or some song like that. And then um, we're watching. I'm watching all these guys go go in all these people. People dressed like different people. You know, someone comes in dressed like Darth Vader. I remember that someone came in dressed like Superman. Someone came in dressed like Batman. Someone came in dressed like the devil. I didn't really understand what that was all about um but anyway someone was dressed like that and then um but it, by the way it wasn't like the new school kind of halloween costumes you know the ones that make that look like like actual movie props i'm talking about the ones that were like basically this giant trash bag that was that had color and then you put your arms through you know it looked like the the thing that you wear to get your hair cut you know not that i'd know about that um and then it had the plastic face you know you put it on and then it had the little elastic band that always broke after like 5 minutes Then you had to have your mom staple the the elastic band so that it would stay on. And then anyway, so you kind of had that whole thing. And so I show up to the door and I'm wearing a white shirt and a pair of blue jeans. I I don't have an outfit. If it was like 1985, I could have gone as like Bruce Springsteen and sung, you know, Born in the USA or something. But it wasn't that time. And so I walked up and I said to my cousin, I'm like, what am I supposed to do? I don't have a Halloween costume. Well, there was this potted plant right in the front. And so she grabs this handful of dirt. She grabs the soil and she rubs it all over my white shirt. And I'm thinking, even at six, I'm thinking, how am I going to explain this to my mom? And, uh, but she says, if anybody asks, tell them you're a zombie. And that was her, that was her, her fix to that whole thing. I had no idea what a zombie was. And so people would say, oh, hey, what are you for Halloween? I'm a, I'm a zombie. And they're like, alright, you don't look like much like one, but alright, we'll go with that. And, uh, and here's the thing, I didn't know what a zombie was, but I would soon find out. Because by the time I was 16, 17, I had probably logged in about a hundred different zombie movies that I had seen. I mean, I saw all the classics. Night of the Living Dead, Return of the Night of the Living Dead, Return of the Living Dead, which is another movie. Day of the Dead, Dawn of the Dead, and then, of course, the classics. Evil Dead, Part 1, Part 2, and Part 3, subtitled Army of Darkness. Now, so I think that I've earned the title of a zombie aficionado. So, all right, so I'm just going to say I, I think I know a little something about zombies. Now, I will tell you this. I have noticed something in, in all of my experience, and that is that zombies have this one problem, and that is they have a very skewed self-image. So what do you mean? The, the big problem with zombies is that they are under the impression that they're alive when they're actually dead. That's like the whole problem. That's the cause of all the zombie movies, all the problems that come up, is that you have these zombies, they think they're alive, but they're actually dead. You see, could you imagine the problem that would be if it wasn't a person, but it was actually a church? That there would be a church that thought it was alive, but it was actually dead? You see, that's exactly what's taking place in the church that we're going to look at today, a church called Sardis. The same thing can actually happen in a Christian's life. That we have a name that we're alive. We have a name that we're, we're titled. the name of Christian, the one who Jesus who rose from the dead. But could you imagine that if we actually looked below the surface, that even though we had an, an outward appearance that we're alive, we'd actually be zombie. Well, we started a series a few weeks ago entitled It's the End of the World as We Know It. And we're working our way verse by verse through the book of Revelation. And we're now making our way to chapter 3 and we're in the middle of explaining and going through these seven letters written to the seven churches. And the thing that we've noted is, and we've been talking about this each week, and it's important for us to understand, is there's really like four applications when it comes to each of these churches that we go through. There's what's called the near application. The near application simply means that there was a particular church in that particular time in that particular city that Jesus wanted to address. This morning we're looking at the church at Sardis. So it's that church in Sardis at that particular time. There's also what's called a general application, that it speaks about churches in general. That's why Jesus says at the end of each letter, uh, he who has an ear, let him hear what the spirit says to the churches. So each letter can speak of all churches at, at different particular times. There's also what's called the prophetic application. What I mean by that is, is that if you look at all seven of these churches and you line them up, you know what you'll find is that they each line up with all of church history in totality. But then there's. What I think is probably the most important one, and that is the personal application. And that is that we can read these letters and glean and learn what Jesus wants to say to us in our lives. You see, the church we're going to look at today is once a church that was the epicenter of spiritual health and vitality. In fact, people would look on at that, this church at Sardis and say, man, if we could just be like Sardis, man, that would just be amazing. If we could be like that church, that'd be amazing. People, Christians, looked on at the Christians in Sardis and said, man, if we could attain to that kind of spiritual maturity, man, we would just have it made. It would be amazing. But you know what happens? Is that Jesus now has to talk to this church, and here's what he ends up saying to them. He says, you have this understanding, this idea that you're alive, but I've got to tell you something. You're actually dead. And this church, that this letter becomes more of an autopsy of a church that has died, but they simply don't know it than a letter that's written to a church that's alive and active. And I think what's so important for us to understand, and so important for us to note, is that it has direct application for you and for me. And that is what happens in a person's life that starts out with this great relationship with God, with spiritual health, spiritual vitality, they are alive spiritually. They're alive to God. But then something happens over the course of time and they start going zombie. How how does that happen? I believe there's actually three differences that you see between a Christian that's alive, a church that's alive, or a church or a Christian that's gone zombie. Three in particular. We're going to start in chapter 3 in verse 1 of Revelation. Here's what it says. It says unto the angel of the church in Sardis, right? These things says he who has the seven spirits of God and the seven stars it says, I know your works that you have a name that you're alive, but you are dead. Be watchful and strengthen the things which remain which are about to die for I have not found your works perfect before God. Now, if you pause there and give me your attention here, here's the first thing that we need to know that's so important uh, the, about the living, if you have your outline handy. The first is this, is that the living have a pulse. The living have a pulse. There's something that's, that's driving them, that they're passionate about, something that makes their heart beat fast. Can I ask you this? How many of you have seen the movie Weekend at Bernie's? Right. Oh, look at that. Most of us. All right. Now, here's the deal. What's the problem with Bernie? He's dead. He's going to all these places. They're trying to act like he's alive, but he's gone. He's dead. It's over. And this church is the ultimate weekend at Bernie's church. They're going through the motions. They're kind of propping him up in the chair. They're giving him a drink to hold. But listen, they are done. This church had a name that they were alive. They had a reputation that this was the church that you wanted to be a part of. This is the church that you wanted to be like. But here's the thing. As Jesus begins to speak to them. He simply says this. He says, listen, there's nothing that's burning in your heart. There's nothing that you want to experience more in your relationship with me. You've gotten set in your ways. And now that's where rigor mortis begins to set in spiritually. And I want to tell you something that there's two words that should never go together. And that's dead church. Because church should be the the, the ultimate living thing. The ultimate living thing because we worship a, a, a Savior who rose from the dead. The very fact that we're Christians speaks of life. And yet this church was one that was a dead church. And there's just, I mean, that, that just seems like an oxymoron to me. You know what an oxymoron is, right? Like jumbo shrimp. You know, it's just, it's just two words that shouldn't go together. Like pretty ugly. You know, military intelligence. Right? You know, Microsoft works. You know, and all of that. It just doesn't make any sense. And so... This church, this church, that was for all the Mac fans out there. Um, Now, here's the thing. This church was supposed to be, they had this name, this reputation that they were alive. But here's the thing. Sardis was the living dead. In fact, here's what I think is so important for us to note. And that is that the story of the city of Sardis matched the story of the church at Sardis. You see, Sardis was a city that had an incredible reputation. They're an extremely wealthy city. They're an extremely influential city. But by the time that John was writing uh, this letter that Jesus sends to the church at Sardis, the glory had waned. The influence was gone. The wealth wasn't there. And so as all of this has kind of waned, and they were just kind of a remnant of what they used to be, now Jesus writes to this church that's exactly operating the same way. In fact, that's what the word Sardis means. It means remnant. Remnant, I mean, it's just it, its its just a reminder. It's, it's this midst of something that used to be there. You see, as we've talked about that Sardis, that all the churches represent a period in church history. Sardis represents a period of time in church history from about 1517 to 1830 A.D. It's what we would call the Protestant Reformation. The Protestant Reformation was this amazing period of time when men and women, courageous men and women, protested against the teachings of the Catholic Church at that time that were unbiblical. And what they did was they broke away. They protested. That's why they got the name that they were Protestant. They, they were protesting this and they wanted to reform what was going on. And so they broke away. But here is the problem. While they rejected the unbiblical teachings, they held on to some of the unbiblical practices. And that's why Jesus says this to them. He says, I have not found your works perfect before God. Now, sometimes we read that and we think, I mean, is God really asking for perfection Is God really seeking perfection of us? No. The word perfection essentially means, in the Greek language, it means completion. So he's saying that I haven't found your works complete. You see, the Reformation was not complete. They got lazy. They got complacent. You see, the Reformation started with men um, like Bishop Ridley and John Huss and and all of these guys that maybe you don't know. Guys like John Calvin and Martin Luther who had a passion and a zeal for the Word of God. And the whole issue that they had was this, is that they did not want the word of God to be chained in the pulpit anymore, because during the dark ages, which is what around this time, 1517, around the time that the dark ages were ending, it was not even legal for people to have a Bible. Even if you were a Christian, you weren't allowed to have a Bible, because the idea was that the average person wasn't smart enough to read the Bible. And so they said, you got to leave it in the hands of the professionals. We'll tell you what the Bible has to say. And that's what led to all of these unbiblical practices because the people didn't know any better because they didn't have Bibles of their own to, to compare. And so when they protested against this, listen, there was fire, there was passion, there was zeal. But now what happened? They went from this passionate discipleship to essentially zombieism. It was amazing. And this is exactly what happened in the city of Sardis. Two centuries before, John writes this message from Jesus. The city of Sardis, who they thought were impenetrable, they sat on a thousand foot bluff that no one could uh, conquer. In fact, history tells us that they didn't even set watchmen out at night because they said no one will ever be able to conquer this city. So what did they do? They got lazy, they got apathetic. And one night when they weren't watching, they were conquered, they were taken over. And the thing is, is that here's the deal. This can happen to you and me. It can happen to you and me. What do I mean by that? Here's how it works. You see, maybe... Some of us come in and we experience the service and maybe at some point in time we've given our life to Jesus in in one of the services. And God starts working in our lives and we're at the place where it's like, I will never miss a service. I'm going to go back and listen to every message ever been taught in this church for the last eight years. And you're just so passionate and excited about what God is doing that you see yourself growing. But then here's what happens. Then you miss. Then you decide to not get into Uh, uh, One of our growth groups, then you decide, well, I'm just going to skip my Bible reading for today and tomorrow and the next day. Well, I know that people are inviting me to go to this place and uh, I don't know if I want to do that. And then here's what happens. The passion, the zeal, the life, the pulse, it starts to wane a little bit. And then next thing you know, before you even realize, here's what's happened. You wake up one Sunday morning and you say, I don't want to go to church. And then you ask yourself this question, why? Why? And we don't have a good answer. I don't know why, I just don't want to go. And listen, some, we don't have any idea how subtly that can creep in to our lives, that we can lose the heartbeat that we once had and end up like zombies. And that was the problem. You see, Jesus was telling this church, that. that's why he says, listen, you've got to strengthen what remains because it's about ready to die. You've got to start doing things differently or, listen, death is imminent. Reminds me of this story that's told about this couple that go to see a doctor because the husband is, is really ill. He they do all the tests on him and, and all of that. They get the diagnosis and as they ask them, as the doctor asks both of them to step out, he says to the wife, he says, "Could you come in for a moment?" She says, "Okay," and she says, "Listen, I want to tell you something that your husband doesn't need surgery. He doesn't need uh, medication. What he, all of his issues are really caused by stress. That's what's causing him to have all of these." Uh, symptoms that he's experiencing. So here's what you need to do. What I need you to do for him, if you want him to get well, is you need to just change things up. You need to create a stress-free environment in his home. I mean, he doesn't need to be nagged. He doesn't need to be told what to do. I mean, seriously, you've got to just, you know, don't like dump a bunch of chores on him. No yelling, no screaming. I mean, you just, this, his, this pl- your home needs to be a place of total peace. And if he can achieve that place of total peace, He'll be fine. So she walks out, husband standing outside, wondering why God asked to be outside. And he says, honey, what did the doctor say? He says, honey, the doctor says you're going to die. So. (laughs) If you don't want to do if you don't want to get there, things have got to change. He says, strengthen what remains, what's about to die. And listen, how do you keep from getting there? How do you keep from getting to the place where it's like, strengthen what remains what's about to die? Jesus says these two phrases. He says, be watchful and then strengthen what remains. He says, strengthen what remains and then be watchful. Now, I started doing something uh, this week as I was preparing for this. And I decided uh, this term watchful, I actually looked up every single time that 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 term watchful appears in the Scriptures. And you know what I found is that about 95, if not a higher percentage of the time, When that word watchful appears, it's always coupled with the idea of prayer. In fact, I put one of the verses here in your outline. He says, devote yourself to prayer, being watchful and thankful. You see, the idea of being watchful isn't just looking around, but it's having like the spiritual goggles on that I'm able to see really what's taking place. And that that then drives me to the place of prayer and drawing closer to God. You see... This word would have been a powerful one to the people of Sardis because the very fact that they were conquered, that city was conquered, was because they weren't being watchful. They thought that they could never be conquered, and they were. I'm telling you, it happens to Christians, and I talk about Christians becoming complacent, backsliding, all of that, and here's what happens in the hearts of some. They say, well, that could never happen to me. I mean, you don't understand, Pastor. I'm I'm reading the Scriptures. I'm here every week. I'm doing everything that I'm supposed to do. That could never possibly happen to me. Well, listen to what 1 Corinthians chapter 10 has to say. He says, Therefore, let him who thinks he stands take heed, lest he fall. If you're standing, great, but be careful. Because if you're not vigilant, you may fall. Listen, we remain watchful by strengthening our faith. I love what it, you can just jot this down. This isn't it's on your outline. It's in second Peter chapter one, verse 10. He says he says this. He says, therefore, make your calling and election sure by which if you do these things, you will never stumble. Understand what, what he says there, that if we will actually commit ourselves to making our calling and election sure that we are connected to God, drawing close to God, and building up our faith, he says that he gives us this promise that you're not going to have to worry about stumbling and falling if you're continually drawing close to God. Because listen, I've never met a Christian who's gone zombie, who was involved in the spiritual disciplines that the Bible teaches. What are the spiritual disciplines that the Bible teaches? There are five. It's worship. That's why we devote almost half of our time to worshiping God. It's Bible study. It's prayer. It's fellowship. Spending time with other believers who can build us up. And then sharing your faith, reaching out to those who don't yet know Christ. And listen, I've never met, never met a person who was actively engaged in all in these spiritual disciplines that the church has taught for two millennia now and then seen them go zombie. It just doesn't happen. Because it's, it's, it's the promise that the book of Second Peter gives us, that if we will do this, listen, we won't experience the stumbling. We won't experience going from this place of having a pulse to this place of being about to die spiritually. Here's what Hebrews chapter 12 says. It's in your, in your notes. It says, at the time, discipline isn't much fun. It always feels like it's going against the grain. Later, of course, it pays off handsomely for its... For it's the well-trained who find themselves mature in their relationship with God. So listen, the idea is, is that if you want to get your pulse going, if you want to have be at the place of spiritual vitality and life, you've got to get involved in the things that strengthen your faith. But Jesus doesn't stop there. He continues in verse 3. This is what he says. He says, remember, therefore, how you have received and heard he says, hold fast and repent. Therefore, if you will not watch, I will come upon you as a thief and you will not know what hour I will come upon you. For you have a few names in Sardis who have not defiled their garments and they will walk with me in white for they are worthy. Now, if you pause there and give me your attention, the, the first thing is this, is that the, the living have a pulse. But the second thing is, is that the living have a personality. What do I mean by personality, I mean that there are things, characteristics to the living that define them. Now, I have a, a two year old uh, at, at home who has this little personality. Now, uh, you know, Mia is our first, and we really thought that she'd just kind of go with the flow. Let me tell you that that's not the case. She likes to go with the flow as long as it's her flow. You know, she's great as long as we're doing what she wants to do. And, and so, you know, she's got these ideas, you know, she has this little personality that's like she's going to do whatever it is that, that she uh, that she wants to do. And, 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 we you know, you have these expectations, right? Like when we were having a little girl. I thought, man, we're going to have this little girl. and She's going to want to, like, snuggle up against us and give us hugs and kisses all the time. Uh, yeah, not so much. Um, you know, she's like and Carrie says, you know, Bob, she's exactly like you. You know, she doesn't like to be touched. You know, she's like kind of she wants her own space. She wants to do her own thing. And so but, you know, she's just like you. She loves to wrestle. She loves to joke. She likes telling jokes. You know, I mean, if she'll tell you a knock, knock joke, she knows those. uh, All you know, she likes that. She likes surprising people. She likes to sing and play guitar with me, you know, because I give her my electric guitar and I play the acoustic guitar and then we sing like Twinkle, Twinkle, Little Star and other other fine hits uh, that'll be hitting. That will be my record will be dropping soon. Um. But, but what happens is this, is that, you know, I mean, this is this little personality, right? It's just amazing to me. In fact, when we told her that we're having a, she's gonna have a little brother, um, she says, I tell her that, you know, hey, you're gonna, you know, we're, that mommy's baby is, is a boy, you're gonna have a brother. And I said, what should we name the baby? And she goes like this, she goes, um Mia Applejuice. That was the name that she says, and so when she refers to the baby, she refers to the baby as Mia Applejuice. Um it's like, mama, that's not a, Great name, but once again, it's not, I can't even go there because she gets upset. But the thing is this I mean, it's like, people have personalities, and here's the thing that's amazing churches have personalities too. In fact, churches should have this one defining characteristic that overarchingly describes who they are. Whether that's a church, whether that's a person, and what is it? It's one word holiness. Holiness. Now, I hear that term, but what does that mean? Holiness really essentially means. Wholeness, that you're not a person who's divided, but instead you recognize that in in the Greek language, the the word holiness simply means this something that's been separated for a special purpose, something that's been separated for a not just common use, but it's something that's for very, very special purposes. You see, holiness is recognizing that God has called us to something very, very special to something very, very unique. In fact, uh, you can just jot this down. This is in 1st Thessalonians chapter 4 verse 7. It says uh, it says Paul writes this. He says for God did not call us to be impure, but to live a holy life. You see, that's the very nature of what it means to be the church. The word church in the Greek language, if you're a note taker, you want to jot this down. It's the Greek word ekklesia. The word ekklesia means this, called out ones. That is people kind of called out of the mass of, of people, called to a specific a specific Purpose and a specific function. And you know what happens when when you start going zombie? You start forgetting that we're a special people, called for a special purpose. And to lose that is to lose the very personality that God has given to us. In the book of first Peter, here's what Peter would say. He would say this to us as believers He would say, But you are a chosen generation, a royal priesthood, a holy nation. His own special people that you may proclaim the praises of him who called you out of darkness into his glorious light, who were once not a people, but now are the people of God who had not obtained mercy, but now have obtained mercy. You see, this was the special calling that they had, and they had lost it through apathy. And here's what takes place. Sometimes there will be this... Apathy that's created in in our lives for whatever reason. And then we'll try to kind of regain the magic, so to speak, with rituals that we that we implement into our lives, thinking that that's going to be what's going to do it. I mean, and that's what happened in the Protestant Reformation. And the Protestant Reformation, what took place was they started to lose that. And then they just said, well, we've got to now formalize this and let's let's kind of just turn this into some rituals. And as we turn it into rituals, that'll kind of bring the fire back and bring the glory back that we once had. And it didn't work. You see, and it, it's kind of like if, if, if you're married or in a relationship, it's kind of like telling, uh, you know, t- going to see that special someone and then reading them a note that you wrote for them. You know, sweetheart, I love you. I think you're the best. I think that you're better uh, then pancakes with lots of maple syrup and bacon. You're better than bacon, sweetie. I love you. You know, you say that. Now that might actually work once. I don't know on who, but it might work once. But then what happens is this: is that then what do you do? Well, then imagine the next day at the same time you say, "Honey, you're the best. You're better than bacon. You're better than maple syrup." and pancakes and then the next day it doesn't have the kind of the same effect, but you kind of have this. Well, I'm going to tell her the same thing every day. I mean, that's exactly what took place. I mean, think about it. That's sometimes what we do with prayer, right? We say, well, I don't know what I'm supposed to pray. So here's what happens. Here's what the church does. The church says, well, we'll just print out some prayers for you. And that's what happened in the Reformation. That's what happened in the movement in the Catholic church that they tried to break away from that they didn't. They said, well, what we'll do is we'll have the professionals come up with the prayers. And once the professionals have really perfected the prayers, now we'll just give them to you to be able to read them. And I'm sure it will be very heartfelt because it did not come from your heart. Um, It came from somebody else's mind, some other group, some committee that came up with the prayer that was, you know, perfectly correct and all that. And, And listen, it was death because it did not give them the vitality that they once had. That's why Jesus says this. Remember how you heard and received What was it that they heard and received? They heard and received the word of God. That's why I was saying that that was that was the gift that the Protestant Reformation gave to the world is that they actually took the Bible from behind the pulpit, so to speak. They unchained it from the pulpit and gave it to the masses because as people couldn't read the scriptures, now they were given the scriptures to read. And that was the thing that ignited their passion. And so the Reformers were the ones that as the Bible, as the printing press had been invented in 1450, now Bibles were being printed and being disseminated throughout the earth. It was amazing. But what happened? But see, what happened was is that what started out with passion had now begun to wane into ritual. And it didn't really matter anymore. You see, that's one of the reasons why, for me, I'm so passionate about each of us bringing our Bible to church. You say, no, that's okay. I have little notes that you give out. Well, listen, you know, those notes are fine, but those notes are really for you to get the other verses that I'm talking about. But if we're reading Revelation 3, those verses aren't in there. And you say, well, no, they're up on the screen. Yeah, but if you get something, a real insight, how are you going to write it down? How are you going to put it in your Bible so that the next time you read it, you don't forget it? Are you going to remember that Sardis means remnant? Are you going to remember that Ephesus means darling and that Smyrna means myrrh and that Pergamos means ejectable marriage and that Thyatira uh, means continual sacrifice? And are, have we forgotten that? But here's what happens is if we take the scripture seriously and we say, no, I'm going to bring my Bible because this is a place of learning and a place of growth. And I'm going to circle that and I'm going to write it in the margin because I never want to forget it. You know what's going to happen in the process of writing it down? You're not going to forget it. Every time you read the Scriptures and you read all of these notes that you've made, all these verses that you've underlined, it's going to continue to bolster and strengthen your faith. You see, the way that I learned the Scriptures was that way. I simply, as, as I, the, my pastor taught through the Scriptures, as we teach through the Scriptures, then here, here's what happened. What happened was is that I started reading. And as I started reading, I started writing stuff and I kept growing. Listen, the psalms would say this in psalm 119 verse 92 it says if your instructions hadn't sustained me with joy i would have died in my misery i will never forget your commandments for by them you give me life you see what was the problem we have a dead church and the dead church what's jesus saying you need to get back to the scriptures because the scriptures are what give us life but see that fire that they had began to wane and can i can i just be real honest with you some of the things that I see in, in, in Protestantism, and I mean, in the scope of things, we'd be considered a Protestant church. But he, here's the thing. I mean, when I look at what's happening in Protestantism today, I'll be honest with you, it makes me absolutely sick. You see, when there are Protestant ministers who stand before congregations and, and actually don't believe that the Bible is inspired, there's a problem. When there's Protestant ministers who stand before a congregation and say, well, I don't really believe any of the miracles in the Bible. That was just kind of flowery stuff that, you know, kind of exciting to make you buy the book, you know, but it's not it's not for real. There, there's Protestant ministers who don't believe that Jesus is actually coming back. Well, you know, that's just, you know, it's just fanciful thought. It's not it's not for real. In fact, there are Protestant ministers who don't even consider themselves Christians. I mean, do you understand kind of where we are? Now, let me kind of take you back for a second because I think this is so important. Um, My favorite book ever, uh, I I read a lot of books, and and my favorite book ever is a book that I read when I was in college. It was a book called Lectures to My Students. And it was written by a guy by the name of Charles Spurgeon, who was a pastor of uh, a church in the mid to late 1800s. The church was called the Metropolitan Tabernacle in London, England. And he had a pastor's school that was called the Pastor's College where he trained young men to go into the ministry and start churches and and teach the Bible and all that. Well, there's a book that came out that he he penned that was all of the lectures that he gave at the Pastor's College. And so, but the thing that always strikes me, and I've read the book several times. I'm getting ready to read it again this year. And here's the thing that always strikes me. Chapter one is called this, The Minister's Self-Watch. And you say, well, what in the world does that mean? The whole point of the chapter... Now remember, we're talking about the middle of the 1800s. We're talking about 150 years ago. The first chapter is about if you're going to go into the ministry, you need to make sure that you're a Christian. Because there were so many people who were entering ministry who you know, for whatever reason, but weren't even Christians. They didn't believe that the Bible was for real. They didn't believe Jesus was coming back. And so this guy, who was probably the most influential pastor on the planet at the time, he had a church of 5,000 people, and he preached to them every week without the use of amplification. There's no microphones at that time. There's no speakers. He just preached. I mean, and he was, he was a big guy, and so he just went for it. I mean, it was, and it was great stuff. But here's the thing. But the thing was is that this guy has to write a chapter about ministers actually being saved, being Christians. I mean, what's that all about? It's the Sardis mentality. It's that what began with vitality has now turned into zombie. And that's exactly what what took place. You know what happens here? It's what happens when a church loses their sense of calling. They forget why it is that they exist. They forget that the church exists, first of all, to glorify God. That's why we exist. But secondly, we exist to fulfill the great commission. The great commission that Jesus gave to go into all the world. I have it there in your notes. Jesus would say this. He would say, go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all things that I have commanded you. And lo, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. And what happens is, is that whenever a church forgets that, they forget the reason for which the church exists. They start turning inward. And then when they stop realizing that it's to bring life to the lifeless, they end up losing their life themselves. When we started our church, when we started this church, my wife and I, when we uprooted our whole lives and moved here, we did not know one person in the city of Miami. But we knew that God had called us and we were following the call of God. We came here because we wanted to establish a community, a church full of people, that cared about those who didn't yet know Jesus. And listen, here's what I can tell you, is that many of you are here, many of you have come to know Jesus, and and here's what we can be very thankful for, that the people that began to call this place home caught on to that vision, that we exist to glorify God and to reach people who don't yet know Jesus. Now let me kind of explain it this way. Maybe this will make sense. Um, How many of you like Peeps? Any, Any fans of Peeps here? Yeah, all right, here you go, there you go, incoming, um, here you go, we got some We got some folks here, there you go, all the way in the back, there you go, insurance doesn't cover that if it hurts you, um, here you go, that was a good catch. So here's the thing, is that we started our church, right? We started our church, and here's what it was from the very beginning, from the very beginning, all right. From the very beginning, here's what it was when we started. We said, hey, if you're going to come to church, here's what you need to do. You need to make sure you bring your peeps. You need to bring your peeps every single week. People that are far from God. People that don't know Jesus. People that need to know Jesus. People that are living a crazy kind of life. People that are, that are hanging out. People that are saying, hey, I, have, I, I'm, so I don't know what the Bible has to say. I don't know anything about God. I don't know any of this stuff. And here's the thing that we said from the very beginning is that we exist to reach your peeps who don't yet know Jesus. And here's the thing. And here's what happened. Now here's why this is so important and this is why I'm throwing around candy. Is because three weeks from today is Easter Sunday. Three weeks from today is Easter. And not only is this the most important day of the year for Christians because it's the day that we celebrate the fact that we have a faith that's alive and real that Jesus Christ rose from the dead and is sitting on the throne right now. But here's what we also understand is that as Christians this is the day that people who are far from God are most open to coming to church and hearing a message of hope, a message of the gospel. And so that's why listen, every year when around Easter time we pull out all the stops and we do whatever it takes to reach people who are, who are far from God because this is maybe the, the one day of the year where those who would probably say no 51 other weeks of the year will say yes this time. And listen, that's the amazing thing about peeps, isn't it? Is that you can't just have one. Like You, just start, you have one peep and then you got to have two and you got to have three. And listen, that's the, that's, that's the whole thing. It's that it's not just like I'm just going to invite one friend. I'm just going to invite two of my peeps. No, no, no. I'm going to invite everybody that I know because I want every person that I know that's far from God to draw near to God, every person who doesn't know God to draw close to Him and come to know who the Savior is who died for me and rose again. And see, that's that's what it's all about, my friends. A person who is actively engaged in reaching their peeps and reaching people that are far from God, here's what you'll find. That is a person who is alive. But when I stop caring is when Jesus starts saying, listen, the things, you've got to strengthen what remains because it's about to die. Listen, you know what happens? Do you know that each year 1,000 churches in America close their doors? That is, close their doors never to reopen. that It's done. The church is done. 50% of churches in America are in decline. That is, that however many people were attending last year, less are attending this year. And see, we're 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 like this incredibly blessed people, and sometimes we don't even realize it that our church has grown, and God has blessed our church, and we've been able to reach so many people that that we're in like the top like two percent of churches in America, and 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 the thing is we don't talk about that or whatever. No, and here's the thing. And this is why, why I, I, we can clap for that. But here's what I think is so important. Honestly, glory to God for the fact that, that, that we, we seek to be a people that God has put in our hearts a desire to reach people that don't yet know him. Because that was the thing that happened in the church at Sardis. That's the thing that's happened so much of, of the, what the, the Protestant Reformation movement was that we forgot the sense of calling. We forgot why we were here. It's like this thing that my daughter says to me all the time. She asks me this question like 50 times a day. She says, Papi, what are you doing here? I mean, like last night I was giving her a bath and she says, Papi, what are you doing here? I was putting her to bed and she says, Papi, what are we doing here? And then we were driving in the car and she says, Papi, what are we doing here? I mean, it's like this constant question. And listen, sometimes maybe I need to send my daughter to a different church to ask the question, hey, what are we doing here? Have we forgotten why it is that Jesus gave us this commission in the first place? Jesus would say this. It was his mission statement in Luke chapter 19, verse 10. It would say, for the Son of Man has come to seek and save that which was lost. And listen, when when this church started, can I I just tell you this? We didn't come here because Miami needed another church. You know that in Dade, Broward, and Palm Beach County, there's over 2,200 churches I mean, that's like more than McDonald's, Burger King, and Wendy's combined. I mean, seriously, you can find a church easier than you can find a burger in this town. But here's the thing. It's not that we needed another church. What, what, what Miami needed was a community of people that cared about those who were far from God because over 90% of people in Miami have no connection to a church whatsoever. And for some reason, when my wife and I were praying and considering, that's just something that just did not, couldn't sit well with me. To say that uh, that there was a city that was totally lost. And my passion and my heart and my hope for each of us is that none of us would actually say that, well, yeah, it's okay if 90% of people, that if I actually took a rock and hit 9 out of 10 people, most of them would be headed to an eternity separated from God. That is unacceptable. And that's why I believe that God has given us the heart that He's given us. I believe that's one of the reasons why God has blessed our church the way that, that He's blessed us is because we are a group of people that have the kind of pulse that God has. The kind of pulse that says we want to seek and save those who are lost. And so what I'm asking for each of us to do is to say, listen, we're going to do whatever we can. Because there, I believe that every family member, every friend, every classmate, every coworker. All of these people need to hear the gospel and see God work in their lives. That's why we're encouraging you to bring all of your peeps out to our Easter service is because we know that someone's eternity could be changed because of it. But Jesus gives one other thing, this one last thing. It's, it's not only do the living have a pulse, they have a personality, but the last thing they have is a promise. Here's what he says in verse 5. He says that he who overcomes shall be clothed in white garments. And I will not blot his name out from the book of life. But I will confess his name before my father and his angels. He who has an ear, let him hear what the spirit says to the churches. You see, they have this promise. And what's the promise? The promise is, and what he talks about, is that that, that they'd be given white garments to wear. And you say, well, what would what you have to wear matter? Now, understand that in that culture that. What you wore, especially when you went to worship, spoke of your relationship with God. In fact, the Bible tells us in the book of Isaiah that our righteousness as we approach God are like filthy rags. But then when we come to Jesus because of his righteousness, because of his work on the cross, here's what the Bible says, that God gives us the robe of righteousness. In fact, if you read the Old Testament, here's what you find, is that people, when they are repenting, the Bible says this, that they tore their clothes If you've ever read that, what does that mean? It's an outward expression of what's happening inwardly. They tear their clothes to mean this, that I am broken before God. And so here's what happens. In fact, let me read you this passage that I believe explains it well. When a person who's lost becomes found, that there's an exchange that takes place. Here's what it says. This is in the story of the prodigal son. He says, and the son said to the father, father, I've sinned against heaven and in your sight. And I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. But his father said to him, to his servants. Bring out the best robe and put it on him. And put a ring on his hand and sandals on his feet. And bring the fatted calf here and kill it. And let us eat and be merry. For this this my son was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found. You see, maybe that's the situation that we're in. We're in the situation of Sardis, where there's some of us, and we've maybe got a name that we're alive, but truth be told, we're dead. Truth be told, I mean, there's no life. Truth be told, there's no response. Truth be told, there's nothing really happening spiritually. And here's the promise that this verse says, is that as we can come back to the Father, that He'll give us the robe of righteousness and say that, listen, you may have been dead, but now you're alive. Listen, here's here's if, if you're in that, that place today, can I just tell you this? That you may have even come to church this morning saying, I don't even want to go and I don't even know why I'm here. That, can I just share this with you? That this could be the very reason why you're here. So that you could experience God's love and grace. And so you might think, no, I've gone too far and God's not going to accept me. No, God will and does accept you if we're willing to make the trek back to him. You see, there came a moment in the story where, in the prodigal son, where it says that this this son, he came to his senses. And he says that I can go back to my father and perhaps my father will accept me. And that's what I'm asking each of us this morning that maybe if we've been far maybe if we're in the point up the place of death spiritually that maybe this is the moment where we come to our senses and say God I want to come back to you and if that's you uh, can I just encourage you in this on the back of your connection card you'll see it says begin a relationship with Jesus or recommit your life to Jesus wherever it is that you are on that and you say that's that's me you check that off and you give us an address that 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 works. And I'll, I'll make sure that I send you a, a book that I wrote that, uh, talking about the first steps that we can take to get back to uh, a vibrant relationship with God. But if that's you, here's what I want to do. As we close in prayer, I want to pray for you specifically. And I want to see God do a work in your life. And I want to see what the Father said about this son, my son was dead and now he's alive. That we would go from the place of, of death spiritually, of zombie spiritually, to the place of life, heartbeat, vibrance, and the promise that Jesus gave. Let's pray together. Lord, thanks so much for your goodness. Thank you for the fact that you don't let go. The fact that even though we're far away at times, you're still there. You're still there waiting. You're still there offering love, grace, and forgiveness to each of us. And so, Lord, I ask, I pray, for those that are making that decision to come back to you, God, that we don't want to live like Sardis anymore. We want to be a, a people who are, whose heart beats after the things that matter to you. God, may today be the day that we make the turn, that we come back, that we come to our senses and come back to the one who loves us, to the one who called us, to the one who's done so much for us. In Jesus' name, amen.